Uh, we're supposed to begin 1 Corinthians this morning. I can't remember where I got everything stuffed in here. Okay. I think I'm going to need to sit for a little while. Okay. Uh, <coughs> 1 Corinthians, uh, the city of Corinth uh, is uh, something... We, we want to know a little bit about, don't have to know too much, but uh, maybe to, so we can understand why these churches uh, were in such great trouble. And while in uh, all probability, before the end of the first century, they didn't even exist anymore. Uh, they were up against uh, Satan in a very large scale. And uh, it was hard, very hard for the people to succeed. A lot of Christians actually left cities like Corinth or Athens, and uh, went to other places where life would be uh, more pleasant for a Christian to live. Uh, first, I want to take a little look at the city. Uh, when you think of ancient cities sometimes, you think of, uh, well, if you're like me, you don't think of much. Uh, but actually, ancient cities were um, every bit as spectacular as cities are today. Uh, the Roman government made sure that that was the case. Uh, when I was in Israel uh, a few years back, uh, I went to a, uh, I can't remember the name of the, the town, that's how small it was, but uh, we went to this town, uh, I don't know what the population, but it wasn't large, it's probably maybe the size of Cougville, I, I doubt it was that big. But uh, they had all the buildings in that Judean town that uh, they had in Rome. They had a Colosseum, for example, a very, very large Colosseum. I preached a sermon in that Colosseum. Uh, it's it's kind of weird because you stand up there on the, their stage part, and uh, the way they've made this thing, you can speak, and the farthest people in this amphitheater, they can hear every word you say. I mean, it's really weird. But th those folks were really, they were very intelligent. Uh, and they had massive building programs. And when you got to a city like Corinth, it would be very large, uh, probably around the size of Nashville. Uh, and outside of what you see here, this might be referred to as the downtown area of Corinth. But outside and around there would be all the houses and the cities and the streets where people lived, the factories. Uh, all that stuff would be there as well. But they. They, they, were, uh, they were very uh, luxurious, if that's the right word to use. Uh, and it seemed like uh, the people who were in charge were very intelligent people. But, you know, you and I know that despite all appearances, the truth of the matter is uh, Satan governed Corinth. And um, it, it showed in the things that went on there in the church, as we'll discuss in just a moment. When you think about the location of Corinth, <clears throat> down here in the south we have Egypt, then of course Palestine, Galatia, Asia, and then you get into the European theater. Uh, in this small area of Achaia, uh, you find there the city of Corinth. So when you think about the relationship of these cities, uh, in regard to one another, uh, we have 
Palestine or Jerusalem uh, over to the uh, southeast. We have Rome up to the northwest, and then we have Corinth, uh, just about splitting the difference between the two cities. Uh, get, I like to get these things in my mind where I can uh, uh, think when I'm studying. I like to think of where the people are in relationship to other cities or towns. Uh, once again, uh, we have Rome over here. We have uh, Colossae uh, to the right of the screen. Then above it is Ephesus. And then over to uh, the left, when you go over to Europe, there is uh, Philippi. Well, you know that Ephesus was uh, one of the seven churches of uh, the Revelation. There were uh, seven churches uh, Jesus wrote to in the book of Revelation. Well, all seven of those are right here in Asia Minor. There's only one left on my map where I blew it up so large. But Ephesus, and just to the right of Ephesus, would be the other six churches. As you can see right there, Colossae is right below Ephesus. That would have been the eighth church of Asia Minor. And then there were other churches in Asia Minor. Uh, besides these. So there were, I know there were 10 at least churches in Asia Minor. Jesus wrote to the seven churches of Asia. Some have concluded that there's only seven churches. Well, that couldn't be right because we know of at least 10. So the number seven, of course, in the book of Revelation, what is it? Figurative, okay? It's not a literal number. It's a figurative number. The entire book is built that way. And sometimes people, uh, they misunderstand. So much of the teaching that goes on today of the book of Revelation is uh, incorrect because people are trying to put a, a, literal, a literal spin on the, the book, and you can't do that. Uh, John says right off the bat, the book is written in signs and symbols. Uh, it's it's, a, it's a, a picture, if you will, uh, an overview, if you will, of what's going to take place uh, in the Roman Empire over the next two, three centuries. So it's, a, it's all figurative uh, in what you see there. But you got Philippi up there in the northern part, uh, right below Thrace, and it's in Macedonia, of course. Uh, left to Philippi is Thessalonica. Down here is Athens. And then, of course, is the city of Corinth. Corinth and Athens, you can see, were fairly close to one another, uh, but they were very different cities. On Paul's second tour, he traveled, of course, after he left Asia Minor. You remember he went to Troas, and uh, he got a call from a Macedonian, come over here, we need help, in a vision. So Paul left Troas, and he went over into the European continent. As far as we know, he was the first apostle to set foot in Europe. And the first city he went to was the city of Philippi, where we'll read about the Philippian jailer. After he left Philippi, he went down to Thessalonica. After he left Thessalonica, he went down to Athens. And then after he went to Athens, he crossed over to Corinth. And then from Corinth, he went to making his way back to Jerusalem and then to Antioch. Uh, you can see the logic of Paul's moves. It's all very logical, sensible, reasonable. The entire Bible is that way. It's all, uh, it's, a lot of it's just plain common sense. Uh, 
but you got to take the time to, to seek out all this information. Uh, one of the things that made Carrath uh, so rich, and she was rich, rich beyond measure, uh, was what she afforded uh, traders, people who traded merchandise. Uh, if you went around the southern tip, it's about a 250-mile journey to get around uh, uh, that region where Corinth sits, uh, which, of course, is a very long uh, way, especially in the ships traveling in that day. But even worse than that, it was a, it was a, a terrible place for ships to travel because the seas met there at the southern point of this uh, particular uh, landmass. Uh, and, and, and the waves uh, was very destructive to ships. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for ships to, sh to sink when they traveled around uh, this area because uh, the seas and the winds and everything was just so tumultuous. And uh, they, they had a saying, uh, for example, a sailor never takes a journey around Malia until he first writes his will chances are very good that if you go around there, you're not coming back. You're going to die. As a matter of fact, most of the ships that did venture that route did, did not make it. Uh, they sunk before they could get to the other side. So they, they needed to find uh, a better way, a better way to cross over and ultimately get to Rome was where they wanted to go. Uh, and, and how would they do that? Well, Corinth proved to be very valuable. We'll blow it up one more time, and all we got now is Corinth and Athens. But when you look at the map there, uh, you see this isthmus between uh, the landmass to the east and then the landmass to the west. It's not, it's not very large. I think it was like maybe 10 miles, eight or 10 miles, not, not too bad. Uh, and what they would do is if the ships, if they could just get across that isthmus and get over into the, the sea on the far side, that would save them from having to go around the southern portion uh, of this region. So what they would do is, uh, well, you see people could travel over from Athens on foot. But what they would do is, when they got to this point, they would take the ship up out of the water, and they had designed this mechanism by which they could board the ship on this mechanism and they could, using animals to pull, they could pull the ship across the landmass to the other side and then they would get the ship back in the sea, okay? Well, that seems smart. You don't have to go down there and risk losing your uh, merchandise. Uh, you're not gonna lose all those sailors that will perish in, in the water. Uh, but it worked out mostly for Corinth because every time these ships pulled in there, uh, the sailors and whatnot, they would go into the city of Corinth and they'd have a big time. They'd live it up for however long, I think it was a, like a two-day thing to get the ship across. But uh, they would go into Corinth and they would spend money, they would buy stuff, and it brought a lot of revenue into the city. Uh, just from the ship being there. In addition to that, there was a mountain just a little bit southeast, almost kissed the city of Corinth. 
there was this mountain there, and uh, it became a holy place uh, for the heathens. Uh, and this, uh, this place, this mountain, became so popular among all the people that was visiting Corinth uh, by means of ship. Uh, it became so popular that it was only a matter of time until it, it became a, a suburb, if you will, of Corinth. As a matter of fact, it had its own name. On top of it was the, what's called the Acropolis, but it was uh, 2,000 feet high, but it was called Acro-Corinth. So you not only had Corinth there where people would uh, frequent, but you also had Acro-Corinth. And Acro-Corinth, of course, is where the temple of Ap Aphrodite uh, was built. Uh, she was supposed to be the goddess of love, uh, they had 1,000 prostitutes uh, that worked inside of this temple. And of course, you know, when the ships were in port and uh, the sailors got off the boat, up the mountain they'd go and they would spend their money up there. There was a lot of, lot of money that was made making Corinth one of the richest cities in, in, of its time. Uh, and every kind of debauchery you could think of uh, took place in Corinth because you had people coming from every country on earth and with them came their customs, traditions, whatever, and they had you know places for their gods and all this other nonsense, but uh, it, it, it drew in the wrong kind of a crowd. It's not the kind of people you want to take home to meet your mom and daddy. But that's kind of the situation of Corinth. We'll talk about that just a little bit more, I think, as we go on. But the thing I want you to know is that Corinth, uh, the church, of course, was established by uh, one of the men, was Paul the Apostle. Uh, he was uh, the greatest influence in Corinth. And uh, the gospel was preached in its simplicity, but uh, Satan uh, was wild and woolly. And the Christians who were trying to live the way they knew they were supposed to live uh, found it very difficult to be faithful in such an environment. And all kinds of sin was uh, just a part of their everyday life. It was a church that was pegged with a lot of problems. Uh, Paul, uh, he spends a lot of time, more time in this letter to Corinth uh, answering questions than he does in any other epistle. Uh, beginning in chapter 7, you notice the, first, the words in verse 1. He'll say, now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. So from there, throughout the epistle, he's answering questions they ask. And when you look at the questions they ask, you can tell, well, when you look at the answers Paul gives, you can tell what the question would have been. And uh, the problems they were experiencing were very serious, very severe. And uh, before long, it, it overtook the church. And uh, she didn't stand too long. Some of the problems that existed were false doctrine, sinful attitudes, and sinful behavior. Uh, Corinth was uh, so evil that when people in other areas of the globe uh, were vile in the way they behaved, especially morally. Uh, 
folks would say they had been Corinthianized. Corinth was such a viable city. It's like saying uh, uh, in the evil, vile woman is Jezebel. Well, if you were immoral, people would, might say you had been Corinthianized. In other words, you were a completely immoral people, just like this particular city was. You got the church now that's been established in the middle of it, and she comes over under all the influence that are prevalent at the time. Uh, there are uh, people, just like today, there are people we baptize, and unfortunately, they've never been converted. There are people we baptize because they tell us they believe. And truth be told, they probably didn't even know what belief was. Uh, we baptize people all the time. And they're here for just a little while, and then they're gone. Uh, they, were, they were never converted to Christ. Now, we're, we're living in a place that had Christ in our midst for the past 150 years. What about a city like Corinth, where they've been immersed in Christianity for a month or six months or a year. What's it like to these folks? Well, they hear Paul preaching about uh, forgiveness of sin, fellowship with the one true living God, and everything else he would speak to them. And of course, it sounded very good. But then you've got to live it. Getting a person to profess faith desire repentance, being immersed in water for forgiveness of sin, that's one thing, but trying to live the life, that's, that's the hard part. You know, anybody can go through the motions of becoming a Christian, and they may even do so sincerely, but trying to live the life, oh, man, it's so hard, and it would be very hard in a place like Corinth. It could be, and I'm sure it was, it was everywhere else, that uh, if you wanted to have a job, you would have to show your allegiance to a particular God. Uh, the unions, for example, they had unions then, just like we do today. As a matter of fact, modern unions came from the older unions. It's just a, a, a carryover of what's always been. But if you wanted to work, uh, if you were an electrician, for example, and that you wanted to be a part of the electrician union, you'd have to bow the knee to their God. They'd have their own God. And if you didn't bow the knee to their God, you weren't going to work. And Christians found themselves in this predicament. They had problems uh, uh, trading, for example, for food and things of that nature because uh, they were known to be Christians, uh, believers in one God rather than all the gods uh, of the European continent. And uh, it caused them to have a lot of problems. And then in the church, you know, there were adulterers. They were adulterers before they became Christians. I would venture to say they probably stopped for a while. And, uh, you know, after they had repented, they stopped doing such things. But it probably was just a matter of time for many of them went back to committing adultery again and uh, these things uh, they
they were they were pounding the church. The church wasn't that large; it was never that strong, uh, and they had a very hard time uh, trying to remain faithful under these circumstances. Paul makes a statement to them in chapter five and verse six: he, "Your glorying is not good." They were proud that they were Christians. Do you not know that a little leaven is going to leaven the whole lump? Do you not know that if you don't get this stuff out of the church, the entire church is going to be affected by it eventually? That's one of the reasons uh, the Lord uh, appoints elders over his churches. It's their job to look out for leaven. you got to make sure that sin doesn't come into the church because if it does, it's going to have an effect on the church if somebody doesn't do something about it. Sometimes you have to um, encourage people. Either repent or leave. And sometimes you just have to disfellowship people and have no more to do with them. There, 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 are, there are sins all around and trying to watch for sin is a horrendous job that elders uh, are burdened with. But uh, if they don't do it, uh, who will? This is uh, the protection of the churches and that's why it's so important that we understand these things that if we allow sin to go unchecked, it's going to permeate the church. And this is what Paul's talking about. Corinth is one of the best examples of getting that point across uh, that I can think of. Both letters um, make this uh, a clear case. Uh, where are we at now? Okay, we're at chapter one. Is there any comments or questions over what I've just talked about? That was just all preliminary stuff. Okay, let's begin with uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Uh, it's just an introduction of sorts, greetings. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. You can tell that uh, the uh, underlined portion, through the will of God, is parenthetical. Uh, if, you, if you would block that part out, it would read, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and Sosthenes, our brother. Paul's writing and Sosthenes is with him. More than likely, Sosthenes was the guy that was actually writing. And Paul was transmitting to him what he wanted written. But the, the point he's trying to make here is that he's not apostle because he decided to become an apostle. He's an apostle because Jesus Christ personally appointed him to the apostleship. It's not something you take on your own. It's something that the Lord, uh, a, a work, if you will, that the Lord himself bestows on you. People today like Don Finto, unfortunately uh, one of ours, uh, claims to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, he's smart enough to know that he has to be ordained by the Lord, and he claims he was, but he was not. He's a false apostle. Uh, but this is the point Paul's making. It's not uh, something he assumed. 
it's a work that was thrust on him. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. You notice it's the church of God at Corinth. Sometimes, unfortunately, uh, misunderstanding uh, the difference between a name and uh, a designation. Uh, brethren have, and some still do, uh, use this as a name for the church. Uh, that's, uh, that's twisting the scriptures. It's perverting the text, the intention of what Paul wrote. Uh, he, was, he was writing to a church which belonged to God, which is at Corinth, the city of Corinth. It wasn't the church of God as a, as a, a name. It was a designation. The people of God, if you will. The call of God is basically what church means. They were the called of God. And the same thing happens, and we're more familiar with, is Romans 16 and 16. And sometimes you'll hear preachers use this as the name of the church. It's not the name of the church. It's the designation. And there's a difference. And we have to, you know, I, I would love it if it said Church Christ and that was our name. But it doesn't. And we don't want to take something and twist it so it'll fit what we want it to say. You don't want to do that. Uh, whether it's Church of God, the Churches of Christ, the Church of the Firstborn, whatever. It's showing these people belong to God or belong to Christ or belong to the Holy Spirit. Okay? This is God's people on the earth. Uh, referred to as the church, the called out of God. Uh, also referred to as the kingdom of God. When you read of the kingdom of God, that's not an official title for the name of the church. It's a designation of who God's people are. The kingdom of God. These are the people on earth that belong to God. And the same thing is true with church. So be careful never, ever, never, ever, never to misapply these, uh, these designations as though they were some sort of a proper name because they're not. Uh, most of the time in the Bible, if you'll notice, the New Testament at least, most of the time when you read about the church, it simply said the church. And there is no further designation. Uh, when, when you're writing to Christians, they know what the church is. You don't have to say the church of Christ every time or the churches of God every time, just the church. And that's the way you read it when you read the scriptures. Uh, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, that is to, uh, to be made holy, to be made clean, to be made acceptable unto God. In Acts 22 and verse 16, Ananias told Paul, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, if I've heard it once, I've, I've heard it a hundred times. Do you really believe water washes away sin? No, I do not. But I really believe Ananias told Paul to be baptized and wash away his sins. Now, I know it's not literal, but it's obviously figurative. If it wasn't figurative, he wouldn't have said it. So when a person is immersed in water, their sins are taken away. 
Since it is in water, they use the language, the figurative language, washing away, which appears to be by water. But we know that sins are washed away by what? By blood. It's by the blood of Christ that sins are washed away. I didn't prepare for this. Uh, you may need to have a pencil, maybe. Uh, when it comes to washing away uh, sins, in Romans chapter 6, verses uh, 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul uh, says that when we are that, that when we are baptized into Christ, uh, we die. We die the death that Christ died. Just as he died, even so we die and then raised as a new creature out of the water. Uh, John 19 verse 34 is a verse you want to remember uh, because uh, the soldiers, uh, they, had to, uh, they had to get the crucifixion finished before sundown because it was a high holy day for the Jews. So they had to get the, the crucifixion done. They had to get the bodies down off those crosses and uh, whatever they done with them after that, uh, they didn't care. But uh, in order to speed up the death of the thieves, uh, you remember they went to each one and they broke their legs. And there's a reason for that. When you, uh, when you are crucified, uh, I believe that the way they crucified men was to uh, put one foot over the other or to put one foot on either side of the vertical pole. Uh, there was a, a, a piece of wood with uh, nails and feet bones that was discovered uh, somewhere over in Europe. Seems like it was back about 50 years ago or something. Uh, and obviously it was somebody who had been crucified, but the way the feet was arranged, they were on either side of the vertical pole and a nail driven in this foot and a nail driven in this foot. When you see it, you know, on a cross or something or you see it on a picture, you got one foot overlapping another. Well, that's possible too. It could have done it either way, both ways. I don't know. But the point is this. When a person is uh, hanging from the cross, uh, as these men had to do, in order to catch a breath, they would have to use their leg muscles, using their, their feet as their base position, they would have to use their leg muscles and raise their self up. And then they'd fall back down. Because of the position of the body during the crucifixion, a person wasn't able to breathe. I don't understand all the medical stuff, but somehow they were forward or something and this was pressing against that. And if they wanted to catch a breath, they would have to raise themselves up with their legs and they would catch a breath, they would sink back down. And sometimes, believe it or not, sometimes people lived on the cross for seven days. And they each breath, every breath, they would have to raise themselves back up. But when they got to the point when they couldn't raise themselves back up anymore, they would just be down and they would not be able to breathe and they would suffocate until they died 
Okay, that's what eventually would happen. On this particular day, there wasn't time for that because they had to get him off the cross. So they broke the legs of the two thieves. The reason being, they can't lift themselves up anymore. Their legs are broken. Um, my hip sometimes gets out of whack. And trust me, when stuff goes wrong, you can't, you can't get up. It's all over. Uh, your leg just hangs there flopping around like an old fish. But uh, this was what, basically what happened to the two thieves the lord on the other hand he uh he was already dead uh, some say he was a puny man i don't think that's true at all uh, i can make a case where jesus was scourged uh, twice before he was finally crucified and it can't be refuted do i th think that happened I don't know. It might have. I don't know. But if you read the text carefully, you can make a text for him having been scourged twice. Now, a lot of people died during the scourging process because it was so intense and horrific. Uh, imagine if a man had been scourged twice. But even more than that, the Lord had been up all night. Uh, Thursday night, he had been up all night long. Uh, he had gone through a series of mock trials by the Jews. They had, uh, they had spit on him. They had beat on him. They had humiliated him. They did everything they could to distort him. Pontius Pilate, you know, he didn't want Jesus to be put to death. He believed he was an innocent man. He didn't want to have his blood on his hands. So he came up with an idea how he could get Jesus out of being crucified. He thought apparently within himself that if they took him off and they scourged him badly enough, and if he presented him before the Jewish people, uh, perhaps seeing his pitiful frame, they may have had mercy on him. Thus, Pilate wouldn't have to crucify him. Jesus may have been standing before the Jews. He may have had one eye. It may have been hanging out, partially hanging out. His mouth could have been ripped all the way to his ear. His skin, uh, oh, it would have been so horrible. And they put this uh, purple robe on him to mock this Jew. And they put the crown of thorns in his head thorns about yay long and they hit it with a stick driving the thorns into his scalp of course blood coming all down his face uh, I think maybe Pilate thought that if he had Jesus severely beaten uh, the Jews would have sympathy for him but they did not they continued to cry crucify him crucify him and they let him out to crucify. What's my point? My point is simply this. Whatever happened to the Lord before he was crucified, I think he died quickly, if you can say that, six hours. Uh, I think he may have died quickly because he was wore out from everything he had been, from, been through. And I think that may be why he died 
quicker than the others. I don't know. Think about it, see what you think. Okay, they were sanctified, they were called to be saints. You notice the two words, to be, are italicized. Take them out, and what does it say? Called saints. That's the correct reading of the Greek text right there. It doesn't have the words to be. Uh, they were sanctified in the Christ, and then they were called saints from that time after. To be sanctified, they were immersed in water. The blood of the Son of God washed away their sins. And when they came out of the water, God called them saints. They were holy people at that time. Now, the word saints, I want you to think about for just a moment. Because in uh, a number of churches today, the Catholic Church is most popular, but you've got the Presbyterian Church, the Episcopal Church, and others. They talk about saints uh, uh, being uh, special Christians that come along every 100, 200 years. And the church votes on whether or not they should be canonized as saints. And if they are, they become Saint Susie or Saint Tom or whatever. It's, it's a total misapplication and understanding of the meaning of the word saint. Every Christian is a saint. When? When they are immersed in the water in the blood of Christ, they come up out of that water and they are called saint. You don't have to wait till you die. You don't have to be voted on by men. This is a name that God has given his people, or a designation rather, that they are saints. And uh, I think it's important to understand that. In, 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 in the kingdom of God, you don't have a, a hierarchy. What you have is Christians. But there's no hierarchy. Nobody ranks over another. Uh, well, you got elders, okay. Uh, you got me and Sean and Carl, okay. What are we? Well, we're Christians. Well, when we come together and make a decision, we're the eldership. But after the decision is made, what are we? We're Christians. I have no authority because I'm an elder. I have no special privileges because I'm an elder. My responsibility is to oversee the well-being of the church and to try and keep her healthy and pure and free from defilements. But as far as pulling rank over somebody, no, that's not part of it. That's why we're called brothers and sisters. There is no, there's not supposed to be a hierarchy. And there isn't one among God's people. When you look at other groups, like the Roman Catholic Church, for example, you're going to find that she is much closer to Satan than she is to God. If you look at how, what she practices, what she believes, what she does, she's much, much closer in line, in step with the devil 
than she is with God Almighty. Am I saying this about individual Catholics? Not at all. Most of them don't even know what they're doing. Most of them don't even know what a Catholic is. Most of them don't know what the rules are. They do what they've been taught to do. And that's all they know. They are blind sheep following blind leaders. And ultimately, everybody falls into the ditch. I thought I'd get farther than this. I apologize. I don't know what got me hung up, Marie. Was that your fault? Now, I'm not going to take the blame for it. We'll, uh, God willing, we'll start again next week. But I'm going to go faster because I, I really want to get this book done in a, in a speedy manner.